0: So, I had a couple of weeks off, and now it's October. How did that happen? Sorry. Welcome to the final series of Who's Round. I've got a few more to mop up, but then that's it, because I'm tired. So strap in, and we start with a legend. I've come from sunny Manchester to rainy London, that doesn't usually happen, and I'm sitting with somebody who I'm delighted has agreed to take part in this process, so I'm going to ask him to introduce himself and tell me why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who.
1: Yeah, uh, My name is David Graham, uh, actor, for many, many, many years. Yeah.
0: And you started with Doctor Who pretty much right at the beginning.
1: Yes, I started off on Doctor Who doing the Dalek voices with the great... Peter Hawkins who sadly no longer with us and um, we used to go down to Linegrove Grove Studios um, prior to one of the stories and uh, and record and um, we we thought out a technique of sort of menacing aggressive voices but with us with a a pausing stutter in the middle, so it added uh, an additional menace to the voice. And then they tricked it up by passing our voices, combined voices, through a synthesizer. So, and that was the birth of the Daleks. And I also appeared in two stories, Mm -hmm. the Gunfighters, uh, with um, Bill Hartnell, and later on, which I played a cowardly barman, which was a lovely story, and Tom Baker City of Death, which I played a Russian scientist, which was another very popular stories, yes. very popular story written and by a famous man, Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams, who died far too young, terrible. And City of
0: Death was uh, at one point the highest the highest views. Yeah, of the yeah. Story.
1: Yes, I still get repeats trickling in. You meet a grim grim. end
0: in that one, though. Which you meet a grim end in that one, which must have taken a while to do.
1: Yes. Well, what did take a while to do was that I had to age very quickly from a young Russian Kerensky to a very old one. So they they put a bit of aging makeup, uh, photographed it, and took me to the makeup room, and then aged me a bit more. And it went back and back and back and forth, and they photographed it. And then, they fused it all together, so it went whoosh, youth to age.
0: I remember it well, it's yeah, one of my, yeah. my most vivid childhood memories. Yeah, indeed. yeah, thank you. The coffee has arrived. Yeah, thank okay. you.
1: Thank you very much. Lovely.
0: So, um, obviously, you worked with two doctors, Tom Baker and William Hartman. Yeah. So how, how, what, how would you describe each of them?
1: Well, I thought, for me, Uh, Bill Hartman was the best. I thought he was excellent. Took it very seriously. He'd had a very good career in films uh, before. I mean, he was in every war film as a nasty sergeant major or sergeant. And he was very... I liked him a lot. I mean, Tom Baker was more of a personality performance. You know, quite... uh, Not over the top, but quite... You know, in your face uh, and uh, nice to work with um, and I love doing the series I uh, I love doing that particular story it was a very very good story by a brilliant writer whereas
0: poor old the gunfighters for many years it's been yeah. it's been reassessed more recently but yeah. for many years it was sort of decried as the worst Doctor Who story ever really? but yes but I think that's because I think it's
1: come up a bit
0: it has I love it yeah um, you keep hiding behind your bar every time yeah. trouble yeah that's off.
1: right and I, <laughs> I remember I I put a bit of cotton wool in the in my front lip I'm sure I wish you you know I was, it, it gave him a, a rather interesting voice mannerism <laughs> so it was just a, an actor's ploy um, and uh, yes and of course Shane Rimmer mm. Is in it, and of course he's in Thunderbirds. He's an old mate of mine. He he lives out of London, so I don't see a lot of him. But I see him at reunions from time to time.
0: Well, I suppose because well, before we get on to the 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 voice thing, there's one there's one Dalek I want to ask you about. I don't know if you remember. There's a story called The chase It's by Richard Martin, and there's a very thick Dalek that you play. Who, when they ask him a question, instead of you know they go how long to the planet, instead of going five yeah, minutes. Yeah. He goes, uh, two, um, one. Uh. Yeah. Oh, so really? we we're always I
1: trying to work on a bit of character. I, thank you for bringing <laughs> it back to me. I don't remember a lot about it, but I was at a, in Chiswick a few weeks ago. Were you, you were there that day? No. No,
0: but I know the, I know the boys. And, uh,
1: and of course I worked with, uh, Richard Martin on either, uh, uh, one of the
0: couple of Doctor Who's, yeah. Yeah. three, three Doctor Who's, yeah. He did with Richard, yeah.
1: And uh, there was this little bent old man. <laughs> you know what age does to you? He, you know, I'm older than him, and I'm in better shape. But um, he was married to quite a well Susan Neve. Susan Neve, yes. yeah, yeah, Now very nice man. So we had a nice chat. You know, when you meet, when you haven't met people for a long time, although I recognised him. Mm. But uh, I was a bit concerned how much he did.
0: So, what's your secret, David? What's the secret in being in better shape than your contemporaries?
1: Well, I've always tried to take care of myself. I never ever smoked. And when when I was young, the first thing you did when you went up to somebody, you offered them a cigarette. It was like breathing. Mm. But I. As a young man, I took a couple of puffs and I felt—I just felt faint—and I stubbed it out, and I never smoked again. And then, for many years, I swam regularly, two or three times a week, about twenty lengths, or thirty lengths of the pool at the YMCA downtown, and um, and uh, I—I've never drunk to any great extent odd glass of wine and it really is a matter of luck some poor people you know get struck with polio or which was much pre- more prevalent than i was young or cancer you know it was it's the luck of the draw you need luck to survive and including your own taking care of yourself well you mentioned
0: Smoking, which of course is a killer, and all also one that uh, affects the voice. So let's, um, yeah, let's talk about your voice. You're not, a, I think, it's a it does you a disservice to describe you as a voice actor, you're a character actor who's done a lot oh, of no, voicemake.
1: no, yeah that is that that is a much fairer description. I wouldn't like to be known as a voice actor because I'm not,
0: but you are very vocally dexterous, I would very, say, very,
1: very gifted in that direction. So
0: when did you discover this and was it something you had to work at or was it just something that no,
1: came it. It. No, I don't work at it. I, I'm just gifted that way. I don't know Wish to appear arrogant. But at school, I always liked to... I had this acting gene in me. Um, an uncle of mine was an actor but gave it up. Um, but I always wanted to act. I always wanted to read the piece or the poem at school. And... Um, After my service in the RAF, I went to America and uh, trained at a famous school. My sister had already gone out there. She'd married a GI and uh, was happily married for many, many years. Now lives in California. So I went to this famous school, Neighborhood Playhouse, School of the Theatre, which was, if I had my time over again, I'm glad I went there because I was able to hone my American accent. But they, you know, basically if you can act, you can act. And if you can't, no amount of technique is going to make you an actor. No amount of exercises or problems or improvisations. At the end of the day, you've got to learn the lines or read the lines and do it. And I'm, over the years, I've honed my technique, you know, as timing and all this and timing is also an innate thing and um, over the years I've accumulated all this experience but basically I'm I was lovely I loved the stage I was at home on the stage you know I knew what to do on the stage and I was lucky because when I first started there was television was in its infancy and there was just ref and the West End and touring And one channel. Um, So I started off in rep at Aldershot, and I did twice nightly in farces. And I gradually went to Guildford better reps, Bromley, which was a a better rep, and then I managed to get cast in a a play in in, um, in central London. In, in Bloomsbury at a play called, in a play called Les Justes by a famous French writer I can't remember and it was directed by Guy Brenton who became quite well known for documentary films not an easy man to work with and Sean Phillips was in it and she was still at RADA you know, a rising sort of star and we both had leading parts in it Wow. Yeah, but my big piece of fortune is when I was cast in a great production of Arturo Ui with the great Leonard Rossiter. Um, it, it, would, it started at Glasgow directed by the wonderful director Michael Blakemore yeah. and um, Stephen Burkhoff. Played Goebbels the part and he didn't want to continue so a great friend of mine Christopher Benjamin who was playing Jiri Goering suggested me and it was a big turning point in my career because I auditioned for Michael Blakemore I got the part and it was just I can't tell you the feeling I had and I knew I could do it very well and uh, we started rehearsal not far from here in the little church hall with Len, the great Leonard Ross, who created this fantastic character. We were rehearsing a couple of days and he came up to me, put his arm round me and said, I think you're giving a marvellous performance. You'd, you'd, me, you know, I was, <laughs> yeah, it meant so much to me. And then we opened in Nottingham Playhouse. Um, uh, it was... I mean, I can't talk enough about Len's performance. It was mesmeric. It was titanic. It was wildly funny and menacing. And the production highlighted everything that he and the whole company put into it. It was a wonderful production. And then, of course, we transferred to London, to the Shaftesbury Theatre, which is now a cinema complex. And we ran for about five months. And um, and it was just wonderful. It was my first taste, and from that, Michael Blainmore, shortly afterwards, became an assistant director at the National Theatre. He was invited by Elan, excuse me, Olivier, and and someone dropped out, in the front page, a famous production oh, yeah. of the front page, Stephen Greif was playing a, uh, a gangster. Uh, Diamond Louis, he was called. He didn't want to do it anymore. So Michael suggested me and I, I auditioned for Laurence Olivier. And I, I did a, a speech from Arturo Uy and one other speech, I think it was by Pinter. And, uh, and I left and Lance Olivier came out and he said, um, Are you doing anything at the moment? I said, No, Sir Laurence. I've been out of work for months, he said. Are you likely to be gobbled up by anybody else? Because <laughs> exact words he said. And he said, well, I'd love you to join the company. And I joined, did this takeover part in in um, the front page. And then I understudied, a huge understudy of Alec McCowan in Equus, which oh. I, n- I never got on, sadly. That was the first I'd production l- of that, wasn't it? Yeah, the yeah. first production. Peter Firth. With... John Dexter, uh, not easy to work with, no longer, no no longer with us. But I never went on. I knew it by heart, and I'd like to have played it because I felt I could have done a very good job. But sadly, <laughs> Alec, Alec was always on. Was always on.
0: But that, but that's you see now that's very heartening for me that as as, a, as an actor. Yeah. That they go. Stephen Greif's not around. Um, Stephen's still alive. Who, no, yes, but uh, yeah, in, yeah. In, in, with this part that you did. Mm. You
1: know, got, now,
0: when I think who could step in for Stephen Greif, yes. I would, you'd automatically think somebody who's tall and big and dark mm. like Stephen Greif, but they went for a completely different type to play I played it part. totally different. Way. I love that, you see. Rather than mm. go for a carbon copy, they let another actor come in and do something completely different.
1: Um, um, I used to do the old voiceover with Stephen, and he used to swim at the Y when I was there. Anyway, and then I did Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and then um, there was another Equus I understudied in, and Jumpers, that wonderful production, of John Dexter, with um, Diana Rigg. Um, I understudied in that, and then I went on tour with a front page in Australia, which, where Michael Blakemore was born and grew up. He's an Aussie. He's not only an Aussie, but he's a wonderful writer. I strongly recommend you read a novel called Next Season. His latest novel was Stage Blood, which was about the time I was at the National with all the ruptures going on backstage. And I wrote to him afterwards, and I said, there was more drama going on offstage than on stage. <laughs> but it was very, very important for me. Because later on, Michael Frame had written a play called Make and Break. Which was about an obsessive salesman who did wall dividers. A superb part for... for for Leonard Rossiter. No one could touch him for obsessive, comic obsessives. And I played a a rather charming, wily Hungarian salesman. And I had a lovely scene with Jimmy Grout, sadly no longer with us, who was a great friend of Len's. And I became friendly with Len. He wasn't an easy man to know, but I used to go to his house from time to time. And I had immense admiration for him. I'd like to have done some of his comedy series, but I was never offered anything. But, but I mean, I saw him three weeks before he died. I went to see him in a revival of a -- I forget the name of the play, but it was a revival.
0: Uh, it was the play he died on was Luke by Lou yeah. yeah Joe he was oh,
1: And I, yeah. Marvellous part for him. And um, I went round, I was with a girlfriend I was with at the time, and he came to the stage door and I said, I've just got a few notes, Len. He said, f*** off. <laughs> Last time I saw him, he's dead two weeks later. What a loss. What a what an actor. In my mind's eye, I can rehearse scenes in which he was in, in Arturo Ui and replay them in my mind's eye. No one, no one could, could have touched it. They've revived it. I think Anthony Sher revived it. I couldn't bear to see it. No one could touch Leonard Roster in that part. He was a genius. Anyway, and um, so I had a good run in, in Make and Break. It ran for about 10 months. And in the meantime, I was doing television you know, like two stories in uh, uh, Doctor Who, and uh, I was in Softly, Softly, I'm not sure Richard Martin didn't direct it, and I was in and out of plays all the time, you know, I did a two-hander, and then I got a, someone asked me, someone recommended me, I went to see someone who was doing two documentaries about Albert Einstein, and I met him in Hampstead, and he, he offered me the part. Well, he, he Googled, you know, I wasn't a big name. So I got to play this wonderful genius, this amazing genius. And the makeup took about two hours. You know, and I looked, if you look at my website, there's a little clip of me as Einstein. And uh, then we, we, did, we did one. And then they decided to do yet another documentary about his association with the atom bomb, which he was against initially. I'm not sure why, because a lot of his theories were the basis of the atomic bomb. But it was a marvellous part to play. And uh, I remember John Tideman, who used to be the head of drama on the BBC Rep, and I was on it for 18 months, so I, during his time, he wrote me a very complimentary card about my performance, you know, because the, the German accent was no problem, and the makeup was marvelous. So it was a fusion of the two, of drama inserts and documentary. Um, and then, of course, my voice, Career many years ago was given a huge boost when I met Jerry Anderson on a TV film called Martin Kane. It was total crap <laughs> script, <laughs> really rubbish. And um, you know, the middle between takes, he sort of got talking and he said, um, I'm trying to get, I'd like to make children's programs, you know, of some kind. So I said, I pricked up my ears at that, and I said, well, I, <clears throat> I'm not banning on voices and character accents. And um, a few months later, I got a call from him, his office, and he said, he's doing a series called Four Feather Falls. Um, and there's a part, he liked me. Well, I, I ended up playing two parts. An old man called Gramps with a wonderful actress called Denise Breyer playing my wife, who's a brilliant radio actor, and, and a couple of Mexican bandits. <laughs> one played by Kenneth Connor, and one played Pedro, Pedro and Fernando, played my me. And I thought, at the end of the day, I thought, well, that's it. No, at the end of that, he asked me to be in Supercar. And then he asked me to be in Fireball XL5. And then he asked me to be in Stingray, and then came the big one, Mm. Um, and he asked me to be in Thunderbirds, and the rest is history really, and where I played not only Parker, and I created the Brains Voice, and Gordon, one of the astronauts, and Kirano, and Ray Barrett, who's played the hood, sadly no longer with us. he played, he and I carved up most of the guest character parts, and, um,
0: and... Well, to be, I mean, to be one television icon, the yeah. Daleks, is, yeah. is, is, good, is, is good going, but to be two, uh, and, I mean, all of those Anderson things are, are great, legendary, and, yeah. great and legendary yeah. and much love. but I think if you were to pick the most recognisable and most loved character across the whole <clears throat> Anderson canon, It's a no-brainer. It's Parker.
1: I know, it's amazing.
0: So where did that voice come from?
1: Well, the voice... Jerry, when he was um, setting up the series, said, I want you to come to lunch to this place, this pub in Cookham, where there's an old waiter who formerly... um, was a member of the Royal Household in some capacity. So we sat down and he called this bloke over and he literally said, would you let me see the Wendy's, sir? <laughs> yeah. And that was the birth of Parker. And of course, I mucked around with it and the H's and I made him much more eccentric. And as we, the series grew, I added things on, you know, and um, if you look at the first episode of that series, when she rings the bell, he, he enters and he said, you called my lady. Uh, after that, we thought it would be much better, you rang my lady. So that was how it remained and who's to know who would have guessed that 55 years later it's amazing someone i was doing a series called Pepper pig which is unbelievably world famous
0: a- another one yeah
1: <laughs> grandpa pig and phil davis i he sent me an email he said i've had a message from someone who i know called estelle hughes uh, who would like to get in touch with you there's some talk of a remake of Thunderbird. Would you be interested? I said, would I be interested? And um, Estelle Hughes is a lovely person, very clever. She's had a distinguished career in the media, both at the BBC and her own production company. And a a guy called Giles Ridge, who has a a big position in in the production side of, of new projects came up to Hampstead and I met him where I met you at Hampstead station and we came in here Ah. for coffee. I think they were checking me out (laughs) to see if I was still in one piece. You know, because it was 60 years, you know, I might have been on a couple of sticks croaking away, you know, like that. But um, they were reassured and that's how it happened. And um, another, they didn't offer me. I didn't ask, and they didn't offer me brains. But I was very happy to be doing uh, Parker, you know. And um,
0: but you've you've sort of interesting. This this, I remember as a student um, watching. Fantasy Football League, which, mm. for the listener who may not know, was two comics, David mm. Bedil and Frank Skinner, mm. and they'd get celebrities to choose their fantasy football team. Yeah. And as the series progressed, and the season progressed, and I'm not a football fan, and mm. I love the show, but I was delighted when Parker turned up. So, mm. how did you organise that? Did you did you did you ad lib through it? Did you go through it and sort of half script uh, so what you were saying? Because it was it was good fun, and it they was, treated uh, him
1: more or of ad libbed. Yeah, I mean, David Bedil has written two scripts for the new Thunderbirds. He did one in the last series and wrote me a lovely part. And I recorded yesterday, and he wrote me another lovely part. Um, He's brilliant. I mean, he does stand-up, and he does. He's a novelist. I mean, and he's a talking head. I mean, he got a double first, I think, at Cambridge or Oxford. He is seriously bright and very nice with it. And he was at the recording yesterday and uh, which incidentally went very well <laughs> and um because from New Zealand there was a very tall man came in one of the project guys on the series in Aust- in New Zealand and I did I did a guest thing in the last series a gangster called Malloy I don't know if you've seen it anyway and he, he came up to me and he said, "I just want to tell you how good you were in that." I was doing a sort of, you know, uh, tough, you know, tough guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's always it's lovely when you get feedback in this mm-hmm. business. You know, I've got a website, davidgraham.co, and I this morning I had three hits from people. You know, someone in Western Australia with a guy called Bill, or sort of. Yeah, and his son, two years old, Linton, who adore my work. You know, it's so nice to get, I always reply to anyone who writes a message on my website, I always reply to, and then they want a photograph or I always get, you know, tell them to get in touch with my agent. So, you know, I, I'm, you know, that's the wonderful thing about this business, that you give pleasure to people with all the stuff that's going on in the world which is frightening at the moment, politically. And, you know, wherever you turn, it's grim. And you're in a business which gives pleasure to people, you know, and doesn't do any harm to people. It's a wonderful feeling.
0: And do you mind that the, the things that seem to come back are things that are often um, t- t- tarred with the, the brush of being sort of culty or, um, you know, sci-fi and all of that? Do, do, do...
1: No. It's much better to be known than unknown, <laughs> so I don't mind at all because it's been good to me and I always say to people, two things are necessary in this business. One is time because and one is luck because all the, the great things that have happened to me was by being in the right place at the right time, meeting Jerry Anderson taking over this part from Stephen Burkoff, through my friend Chris Benjamin recommending me, auditioning for Michael Blakemore, auditioning for Laurence Olivier. Those things were... If I hadn't been in the right place at the right time, I probably wouldn't be sitting here with you. God knows what I would've been doing. I might have survived and got lucky in another direction.
0: And so, you, well, you mentioned Olivier and Leonard Rossideau. Are there some of the other sort of great, great talents that you've worked with? There?
1: Um, well, Colin Blakely, Joan Plowright. Colin Blakely died far too young. I did too. I did a, another play, Philomena, by, um... Same author, same director, um... Zeffirelli, Franco Zeffirelli. Also not an easy man to work for, but, um... Um, so I've you know I've been lucky I'm working and you know if I was never intimidated by people because I did my own thing I wouldn't say I'm working with Leonard Rossiter you know you who could be quite quite difficult but if he saw you were good it it doesn't matter it was like one good actor great actor recognizing a good actor you know and I was always i wasn't arrogantly confident but i was always confident in my abilities especially on the voice side mm. and you know when i get into a studio uh, it is very serious work but i have a very good sense of humor even if i say so myself and they will always like my sense of humor the way i approach the work um, kind of one-liners i come out with so it's a very happy way to make a living doing something you're, you're good at um, and having the rewards I've had. Because uh, earlier this week, you know, I get repeats from time to time on the first series of Thunderbird. And I had a bumper repeat of a Thunderbird, obviously sold to Japan or somewhere all over the world. So, you know, these things make one's life easier, mm. you know. And the fact that I'm very old in terms of age, but I'm together. You know, when you hear about dementia and Alzheimer's and and all the terrible things that happen, you know, I'm I'm, I'm blessed in a way that vocally and mentally I'm on top of things. And what? But what about you know, in
0: those early days? Say, for example. I mean those those early tellers you did were, were live. I mean Oh yeah, well,
1: live, frightening. Well, I'll tell you a story. I was doing a one of the great plays of modern plays of history by the great Arthur Miller. Oh, Death my favorite Death, Death of a Salesman. 57 salesman. Uh, you did. That. Yeah, I was, and that was live. And I remember, I forget the I forget the name of the director. It was a, a Silvio... A Silvio f- and Yeah. Yeah. I did a, a few plays to him, and uh, the floor manager was a, a guy who later on became a director, and of course live, and I was playing Bernard, and there's a young Bernard and an old Bernard, and I had to run, run across the stage because it, the, the set w- was almost not in a, in a proper studio. You know, So I had to run across the set to to hit a mark to play my big scene. It wasn't a huge scene, but a very important scene with Willie Loman, where he asked me, where did I go wrong, Bernard? What happened to me? What happened to me? And as I hit the mark, the floor manager gave me the wind-up to get a move on because we were overrunning to speed up the dialogue. What a way to be cued, you know. But I got through it all right. And I think we, you know. But that's the sort of thing that happened. I remember in one production I wasn't in, someone even died Mm -hmm. on the set. But, and it was like, it was like a countdown to an explosion, you know. Eight o'clock, There was 30 30 minutes, and then 15 seconds. Five, four—it's a wonderful way to relax an actor to this this heightened tension. But you just cope with it, you know, because whatever you're doing, there is a slight tension, you know. If an opening night, big tension in the theatre, you know.
0: Well, um, you and you worked—I mean, you work, I think the first
1: telling I found for you was directed by Rudolf Cartier mm. um, Yeah, Portrait of Peter Barone. That's the one, yeah. Um that 1952. was fifty two that was at Alexander palace, and we were we were some kind of jury giving evidence Derek far derek farrah David farah
0: David yeah.
1: yeah and we were all sitting on seated on chairs, and one by one we went up to play a little scene with David farah and it was like moving up. In the execution chamber, <laughs> you know, and of course it was live. Well, he was a big name, um, Rudolf Cartier at that time. He was rather serious and Germanic. He had, a, I think, he was originally from Germany or Austria. Austria yeah. mm. But he was a big name. He lived to a great age, I think.
0: He mm. did, yeah. Uh. He was about ninety-four, ninety-six. It, his his birth. I've I'm writing a book about Great Mass. His birth date varies.
1: I've got some catching up to do. <laughs>
0: and um, another emigre that you worked with was Herbie Wise. You worked with a lot. Brilliant,
1: very good. In Search of Happiness, a play I did. A Granada, In Search of Happiness. And he was a very good stage director. He what he got his spurs directing uh, Dundee Rep I think, was a young man he was a very good is he still? no, he no. died relatively recently yeah, he, he was, he was you know, every time I open the paper I read someone I know who's died and you know you just got to carry on and I'm so lucky that I'm, you know still able to work at a high level you know I mean, yesterday's session was a case in point you know, people at the end sort of thank me for my, you know, ac- other actors, you know, you can't get it better. You know, sure. and it, it means so much to me. It's marvellous.
0: Well, look, I've, I've spent more time than I said in so yeah. I'm, gonna ask, I'm gonna ask you that um, maybe aside from, yeah, because cause often actors that are in things that have a following, uh, followed by people like me, Thunderbirds and Doctor Who, um, what, what as, so aside from those things that you obviously, love and are rightly proud mm. of. What, 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 what jobs do you think would you like people to ask you about that you think were that you did a good job in or that you think were very good or that you particularly enjoyed that weren't perhaps your Doctor Who's or your Thunderbirds?
1: Well, I have to single out the big break I got working with Lena Rossiter. It was a marvellous part, Givala. And um, you know, and I have a powerful voice when I want to use it. I can fill a theatre, you know, and that was a great experience—not only to play with a great actor, but in a great production, and also again in in, uh, in make and break together w- with Len. And um, I think uh, when I played Einstein, Albert Einstein, it was a huge challenge, which I met and I think succeeded in. But, I mean, at the end of the day, you're dealt a certain hand in this life. And and an actress's life is not an easy one. It's very difficult. Lots of pitfalls, huge disappointments. You've got to have staying power. But I always had a faith. I had to keep at it. You know, as I said, I had these kind of fortunate breaks. When you get that, you've got to make the most of them. And I'm hoping that it'll carry on until the Grim Reaper calls.
0: Ah, have you ever had to do anything else since you started full-time
1: um, Yeah, I, walked, I worked in, very early on when I was just struggling, I worked in Wall's Ice Cream Factory, which was a kind of mini-nightmare. You know, sort of taking blocks of ice, you know, wafers and... Putting from one box into another, with the guy behind you saying "Speed up, speed <laughs> up, speed up." It was like Modern Times with Chaplin, with Ghastly. and and of course a lot of actors early on worked in the post office. I think one Christmas I worked in the post office, sorting. Oh, and one thing we haven't
0: mentioned does not as big a following as Doctor Who and Thunderbirds, but Time Slip is still oh yeah fun hugely
1: yeah with my my great friend sadly who I was at the National with, Dennis Quilley. Uh, no, brilliant I, uh, well, oh, He was a wonderful, act. Excuse me. wonderful actor, Dennis Quilley. So versatile. He could sing, he could act. You know, I mean, he played leading parts, and I was in the Scottish play, which I'm not supposed to mention. Uh, I, I was playing a small part, and he was playing the king, uh, and uh, Diana Rigg was playing uh, uh, Who's Lovely who was playing Madam. Um, And I also did early, long time, earlier in my career with Bernard Miles, when when he had a theater in his back garden at St. John's Wood. And we did the play, and Bernard, who was very eccentric, said, we're going to do it in the original Elizabethan. So we had some weird coach. And I was playing the Bernard Wood messenger. And I actually came on and said, as I did stand my watch upon the hill, I looked toward Brunham, and anon me thought so, the wood began to move. And then I noticed the next day in the evening standard was, in the farmyard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, God. You can't win them all. In the farmyard. <laughs> but he was, he was, you know, but, you know, I was glad to do I was making about fourpence I think, you know. But it was an, another stepping stone. And I met a very good friend who was also doing a gentleman in waiting. Sadly no longer with us.
0: And I always I always like to mention Cyril Shaps in these because he's a he's a favourite of the listeners, so he was my mm. close friend of yours, was he said. Oh yeah.
1: Very close friend. Um very he was orthodox, a Jewish person, and he kept you know, his house and his wife, a wonderful marriage. And she died sadly before, and then he got some debilitating disease and he, he died. But he had a wonderful, he had a beautiful voice. He was on the rep. Um, and we did this, um, um, what was it, when the boat comes in together? No, he was a very good friend of mine.
0: Well, look, I'm very grateful for your time. Mm. So let me ask you the last two questions. The first of which is, uh, because you have given your time for free and because I do not get paid for this and the listeners do not pay to listen to mm. this, we ask them to donate to a charity. So what is your charity of choice, David?
1: Well, um, any cancer charity, the British Cancer Charity, the main cancer charity...
0: Yes, Cancer Research?
1: Yeah, Cancer yeah. Research would be perfect because I went to a dinner recently at which Sylvia Anderson... Who died recently was was arranging, and uh, with her daughter Dee, and sadly she died. But the dinner took place, and I was invited, and it was for cancer research. We shall do
0: that. And the final uh, question is: this This podcast was originally conceived nominally to celebrate fifty years of Doctor Who. We're beyond that now. But yep. well, what's your message to the Doctor Who fans listening out there?
1: Well, um, I. I'm very grateful that I was lucky enough to to create the famous Dalek voices with my dear friend Peter Hawkins, and to appear in two stories, one with Bill Hartnell, one with Tom Baker, which I understand has become one of the famous stories of all the time. And uh, keep watching, and I'm grateful to you all for loving the series so much.
0: Well, and I'm very grateful to you, so I'm going to say, David Graham, thank you very much. Great pleasure. Thank you. That was great. Yeah.
1: I wouldn't mind
0: another... Yeah, it's absolutely another couple. Yeah, I will... Yeah, yeah I will sort that out. My thanks to David Graham. What a privilege, uh, His charity is Cancer Research, which is cancerresearchuk.org or, as he said, any cancer charity that might be close to your heart. Depending on when this goes out, it might be an iPlayer or a listening thing. I have written a play called Going Going Goon about the life and perhaps fictional death of Spike Milligan. At you on Radio 3 on the 7th of October there's an interesting date at 7.30, so you won't listen to it when it goes out anyway, because that's when Doctor Who's on, typical however, it will be on iPlayer for a month have a listen, it's got Mark Heap and Pippa Haywood from Greenwing in it and uh, me as well um, ok, another Who's Round in about a week uh, thanks for listening, welcome back hooray and yikes
1: As the Spectrum jet touched down at London International Airport, an intercontinental airliner from Central Africa Airport was touching down on a parallel runway. Among the passengers who alighted was Professor Standal. He thrust his way unceremoniously through the crowd and showed a pass to an official.
0: Ah, yes, Professor. Your private plane has been refueled and is waiting on runway 27.
1: Stendhal strode away, cape flapping about his gaunt shoulders, like bat wings about to open. A few yards behind him walked a powerfully built man in a dark suit, with a strange pallor on his clean-shaven face. An airport worker who brushed against him glanced up at him, then turned away with a little shudder.
0: What's wrong, Sam? You look like you had a fright. It's that bloke that just passed. Horrible look on his face, like a walking corpse. Like death warmed up, eh? (laughs) Come along, what you need's a nice strong cuppa.
1: The man they were talking about moved on in the wake of the scientist. Suddenly, he drew back behind a luggage truck, his ashen face tense.
0: Captain Scarlet here, is it just
1: coincidence? Scarlet came into view carrying a small case, making for the airport buildings. Suddenly he checked, and the watching man quickly slid away out of sight round the bend of the truck. Scarlet frowned, looking about him suspiciously.
0: Strange, I had that faint dizzy sensation I sometimes get when there's a mistron agent
1: around. He hesitated for a moment or so, but the feeling did not return, he shrugged. And walked on.
0: Yes, I must have been mistaken. But if I wasn't, there would be precious little chance of finding him among these crowds. Not without my Mysteron detector, anyway.
1: So Captain Scarlet and his deadly enemy, Captain Black, the former Spectrum agent who led the expedition on Mars and whose body was taken over by the Mysterons, passed within yards of each other. Had Scarlet seen his enemy first? the history of the next few weeks might have been very different. While Scarlett was getting into a hover taxi outside the airport to travel into London, Captain Black was stowing away in the private heli-jet of Professor Standal.